One of the Bible studies that I, or methods that I've often tried to employ is I try to visualize the passages that I'm reading. This is one of the methods that kind of helped me when I was preaching through the books of Kings. You can kind of get lost, as you might imagine, in all of those narrative passages, the very long and winding passages that are just filled with details and dates and names and so on and so forth. And much of the Old Testament is similar to that. There's lots of narrative. There's lots of geographic and biographical details. And one of the ways that I've tried to um, sort of get through all that is, and this is maybe will sound silly, but um, I try to imagine what this story that I'm reading would look like if it were a movie. I try to imagine, if I were to make this into a movie, how would I want it to look? How would I want all these scenes to play out? And maybe I'm biased, but I really do think that the Bible has some of the best material for movies in all of the world. (laughs) Of course, we know how Hollywood has treated some of those quote-unquote biblical movies in the past, not very faithfully. I won't. I'll I'll try not to get on a diatribe about that. But regardless... uh, Even still, uh, I I think there's a lot of narratives in the Old Testament especially that when you're imagining, you're visualizing them, man, that would make a great movie scene. I think about the scene in Joshua chapter 6 when all of the Israelites are circling around the walls of Jericho, blasting their trumpets. (laughs) What a great scene that might be. Or uh, another very obvious one is one right from Judges chapter 6 and 7 with Gideon and his 300 men. Instead of 300 mighty warriors with armed to the hilts with shields and spears, this Gideon and 300 would just be armed with torches and lanterns. (laughs) Maybe not as exciting, but it would definitely be enthralling. Of course, David and Goliath would make a good movie scene. I always often think about, though, 2 Samuel 23, where you see all those stories of David and his mighty men. And think about all of the things that they witnessed and all of the great events that came about from their hands. But I'm not, I don't mean to bury the lead here. Of course, I think Samson's life is, of course, one of the most cinematic stories in all of the Bible. This character, Samson. This guy that you perhaps are very familiar with from your days when you were uh, in Sunday school looking at all the flannel graph lessons of of Samson and and learning about his life. He's always depicted as this really buff, muscular, macho man. The sort of uh, biblical Hercules, if you will, with long hair. And he's doing all these amazing things. (laughs) These are the events just... I'm just I'm going to try to in bullet point form just listen to some of these things that make up Samson's life his exploits if you will like the time in chapter 14 when he tears a lion into two pieces with his bare hands or the time in chapter 14 where he slaughtered 30 soldiers all by himself or the time in chapter 15 this is You won't believe me, so you can go and read about it in chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. How about the time when Samson ensnared 300 foxes, tied their tails together, and then lit their tails on fire, and let them loose on the Philistine countryside? Now, that's eyebrow-raising. Or the time when, in chapter 16, which we'll get to in a moment, when out of spite, just because he wanted to, just because he wanted to prove a point, he decided he was going to rip the gates off of the city of Gaza and bring them up to the summit of Mount Hebron and just leave them there. This is, this is Samson. He's, his story often sounds more like the, the exploits of a comic book character rather than a biblical judge. And yet this is... 
Samson. A story that his story is filled with a ton of powerful and emotional moments that, yes, very well can make for a good movie. And did you know they tried it? Like, I'm not really preaching, this is sidebar. They tried it back in 2018. And it stands right now with a 4 out of 10 rating. It was not good. It bombed. Don't look it up. It, it looks terrible. But anyways, back to preaching. Um, they tried it, and it failed. Because I guess Hollywood doesn't know how to make movies about the Bible. I don't know. But regardless, this story is always one that I've been captivated by. The story of Samson. It engages us. It, it captures our attention with all of these very sprawling and even perhaps surreal details that almost seem otherworldly. But you would be wrong if you envied him. If you come away from the story and you're like, man, I would like to be like that guy. I think you've learned the wrong lesson from Samson. Because the story is a true tragedy. A, the most cautionary tale, perhaps, in all of scriptures is this story of this judge, Samson. And to really understand it, we have to contrast the way it began with the way it ends. Notice, again, verses 20 and 21 of chapter 16. Judges 16, verse 20, notice. And she, that is Delilah, said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as the other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. If you were making a movie, if I was making the movie about Samson, this is where I would start it. I started right here at this scene where he wakes up in the middle of the night and he thinks that just like the other times, he's going to be able to get out. He's going to slip through the fingers of the, of the Philistines and nothing, no harm is going to come to him. But he doesn't remember or he doesn't know, he doesn't perceive that the spirit of the Lord has already departed from him and this would spell his end. And then as he's standing between two pillars in my movie, it would just be one of those freeze frames and it's like, er, record scratch. How did I get here? <laughs> How did I get to this point in my life where instead of judging the people of Israel as I was promised, as I was predicted to do, now I'm standing between two pillars being the, made the fool, being made to play the clown for all of these Philistine magistrates and rulers. How did I get to this point? Because Samson's life didn't begin this way at all. It began in an abundance of hope. Go back with me to chapter 13 of Judges. There's so much hope attached to his name. From the very time he was born, you can almost sense this almost Messiah-like quality to Samson's birth. And indeed, if you read the quote-unquote nativity of Samson, there's a lot of elements that are very similar to the nativity of our dear Savior that we come to know and love in Luke chapter 2. There's lots here, in and just notice... Verse number 1 of chapter 13, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. 
Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And notice, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This is the nativity of Samson the judge. It's filled with all these elements which might make our minds sort of pop off and, and be reminded of the beginning chapters of Luke's gospel. There's lots of elements that make us think about this divine sort of announcement of his birth. The, the angelic messenger is, is here announcing his arrival to this mom who has never born a child before. You have this wife of Manoah who... The news of pregnancy seems really far-fetched. She's barren. Then you have, we didn't read the verses, but Manoah himself is very doubtful that this is true. And in fact, so just as a way of connecting point, you have a husband who, who doubts that this can even come about. That when his wife comes in and tells him that she's going to bear a son because an angel told her so, he can't seem to wrap his mind around such news. <laughs> the hopeful notes of deliverance and Salvation are filled within this passage. That Samson would be the one to bring about salvation to the people of Israel who were so caught under the thumbs of the Philistines. Indeed, for the moment, try not to let what you know about Samson cloud out the excitement that fills the announcement of his birth. Notice verse 24 of the same chapter, chapter 13. Notice what happens. And it says, and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him and Menahadadon between Zorah and Eshtaol. This, you might know, is the only example of a nativity scene, so to speak, within the book of Judges. Which I think just further gets our minds into seeing how odd it is, but how specific it is, how significant it is, that we're reading about the birth of Samson. Of course, as we know from the beginning verse of chapter 13, he's born into a time of darkness. Israel is under oppression by the hands of the Philistines. Things look grim. Israel is disjointed. They're not a united kingdom as would come about much later. They are a disjointed group of tribes. And they're being dominated they're being disjointed. They are being dislodged. The promises of God that were given to them all the way back in the wilderness seem far removed from their current state of affairs. And yet, what, what do we see out of this nativity of Samson? All of this hope that comes teeming to the surface. That he was the one that was going to bring deliverance. As it says, they begin to bring salvation into the land of Israel. What hope there is for Samson. What hope there is for this one. Through him, we could say that the, the sun was hopefully going to rise. It had been a long night of grim darkness. And now, yet through the birth of Samson, the sun would begin to shine again. And indeed, that's exactly what Samson means. It means like the sun. 
His mission then was just filled with this hope of salvation. And it's seen exactly in that fact that comes about when the angel is announcing his birth. That he is to be set apart, separated unto the Lord's service. Notice it again, verse 4. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink. And eat nothing unclean, for behold, your son shall conceive, for you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This is what was promised to come about through Samson. He was going to not only have this very significant mission, but he was going to have this very significant calling placed upon his life. Where from birth, from the time he enters into this world, he was going to be selected for the Lord's service. And this would be demonstrated by this religious vow called the vow of the Nazarites or the Nazarene vow, if you will. Which is a significant religious oath or pledge that was laid out back in Numbers chapter 6. If you want to know where it comes from, that is. And those pledging this sort of oath, this this vow, it meant that your life was held to a different standard. It meant that you were in a very significant way uh, adhering to this life of Yahweh, the life that Yahweh had laid down, meaning you were going to follow very vehemently even extra rules and laws for cleanliness and holiness. They were accountable to all the Mosaic covenants and they could never eat anything from the grapevine. They could never cut their hair. And they could never touch something that was dead. There was this separation that occurred. Because this is one through whom God was going to be working. This vow, of course, it's not just thrown in as an extra detail to Samson's nativity story. It's actually the crux of how we understand Samson's life. This vow is central to understanding how, we, how, to, how to make sense of this tragedy that befalls Samson at all. Because despite being blessed by God, despite being chosen by God to serve God, despite being gifted by God and have everything ordained by God before he was even born, Samson was quite satisfied, as we will soon see, with wasting all of that on himself. All of those blessings, all of those ordinances, all of those gifts he squandered. He is seen often throughout his life just piddling away his mission for sport, playing around with pleasure, playing around with power, and he, because he sees himself and he grows to see himself as this unstoppable and invincible force. Evidencing a very flippant attitude toward the very things of God that had chosen him for this service in the first place. He takes his vows very nonchalantly. He doesn't take them seriously at all. In which is just to say that Samson's ultimate weakness ended up being Samson. He was his own worst enemy. Because he got into his head that he was so high and mighty that nothing could touch him. Nothing can stop him. He is God's chosen one. And it didn't matter what the Philistines did. It didn't matter how his life looked. He was Samson. And this is very painfully brought to bear in our text, chapter 16. In a number of ways. At the beginning, in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 16, he's in Gaza. Where he begins to become infatuated with a prostitute. So much so that he is with her in her home. 
And the men of Gaza suddenly realize this. They realize his presence, the presence of Samson here, and they begin to concoct this plan to ambush him and kill him. Notice verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute. And when he went into her, the Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate, at the, at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night saying, let us wait till the light of morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. This shows the sort of cavalier attitude that Samson was just so ingrained with that he, maybe perhaps he heard rumors of this ambush that is coming, but he didn't care. He just sat around till midnight, counted and bided his time, and then out of just a display of spite again, he rips the gates off and, and basically says, don't mess with me. And then in verses 4 down through verse 17 of this text, that's where we get to perhaps the most familiar part of Samson's story. His sort of tragic love affair with the, the lady Delilah. If you read this story, it's kind of a frustrating a back and forth. As Delilah is this one whom Samson becomes so infatuated, so in love with. And yet at the same time we know something that perhaps Samson doesn't. That she's been employed by the Philistines to seduce Samson in order to get him to reveal the secret of where his strength is. Notice verse 4. And after this he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him. And see where his great strength lies. And by what means we may overpower him. That we may bind him to humble him. And we will give you, we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. And so Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies. And how you might be bound that one could subdue you. And back and forth they go a number of times. The Philistines by this point are just so frustrated by all the times that they have been eluded by this judge, Samson. And all of the ways in which he's embarrassed them, put them to shame. And so now they're placing all of their bets on this woman, Delilah, and her ability to sort of coax out the answer out of Samson. And then that's where we get into this Pretty agonizing back and forth between Samson and Delilah with Samson lying to her, fibbing to her, telling her, her his strength lies in this. And then that thing is being used to exploit him and then it's not at all what happens. Notice verse 7, Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. And then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound and she bound him with them. Now the men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, "The Philistines are upon you." But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire, so the secret of his strength was not known. And on and on this goes. They tried a second time, and a third time. And each time, Samson is fibbing to Delilah, and Delilah is trying to get, her, get, uh, get the Philistines to be able to capture him. And each time, Samson slips through their fingers, showing his strength, showing his might, showing his force. 
each time Samson comes out on top, which I don't think did too well to uh, keep his ego in check. He's constantly coming out on top, constantly receiving the accolades of escaping the Philistines. But this fast and loose sort of approach that Samson has here to this secret, the secret of his strength, so to speak, evidences, I think, that he is fast and loose with the vow that he had made with God. He doesn't really cherish it. He doesn't really honor it as he, as he ought to. Bringing us to the culmination of this story in verse 15. Where Delilah decides to play the emotions card with Samson. Notice. And she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and you have told me and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. She annoyed him. (laughs) How can you say, you don't really love me. If you really loved me, you would tell me the secret. You would tell me what it is that makes you strong. She charms him. She wouldn't leave him alone to the point where he finally just gives up. He's had enough. And he divulges his secret in verse 17. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Of course, the ironic part is that that's not true at all. The ironic part is that there was no magical quality to the hairs on Samson's head. They were but a symbol. They were but a representation of that which was on the inside. His strength was not in his hair, but in his vow to God the Father, by which he had been consecrated to the Lord's service. It was God's presence with him throughout all of those extraordinary events. And in fact, you can go back and look at them all. What precedes them? Is this phrase that says, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. It was God's presence with him, which was, yes, evidenced and indicated by this vow that he had taken. The length of his hair was not magical. It was just but an outward sign of this inward devotion that was supposed to drive his actions and and conduct his life. Therefore, the cutting of the hair here in this moment with Delilah is also a sign, it's an indication that Samson has totally misrepresented and misunderstood what it was that he was supposed to do. And yes, also too, now he's casting off that vow effectively with this, this great scene of his hair being chopped off. Verse 18. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, She sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money into their hands, and she made him sleep on her knees. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out, just as at the other times, and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Devastating words. An awful thing to overlook. That the Lord was no longer there. 
That the Lord that he had played so cavalierly with, so fast and loose with, was now no longer present with him. Which is what brings us to this horribly ironic scene in verse 21 again, where it says, The Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. Do you sense the tragedy? Do you sense the awful trajectory that Samson has now just been brought on? That now his life looks nothing like how it began. The one who was, quote, like the sun is now thrust into darkness with his eyes popped out of their sockets. And now Israel's supposed deliverer, the promised one who was supposed to unshackle them from their captors, is now caught in shackles himself. And the mighty warrior who once used the jawbone of a donkey to slay an entire host of Philistines is now reduced to the work and function of a donkey himself. It is a tragic fall from grace every step of the way. And this one who trifled and played around with his calling to judge the Philistines is now here judged. As just a trifling Philistine plaything. As he's marched out in the middle of that party. Entertain us Samson. Be our jester. Be our clown. Be the one through whom we can mock and jeer. And rejoice in our God. Our false deity. And know that now with your capture. We have conquered him. It's a pathetic picture. All, all the way around. No matter how you look at it. And again, we ask that question, the freeze frame question. How did it end up like this? This is not how it was supposed to go. This is not how things were supposed to transpire. And yet the easiest answer is, I think, the most accurate answer. Pride. Pride got into the heart and, and nestled its fingers into the heart and mind and actions of that Judge Samson. And his life was thrown off the rails because of it. All of his feats of strength, you can look at them and see the ways in which he was led to believe that it was his strength. It was his sufficiency that was winning the day. It was him. He was the one who was doing it. He's the one who is overcoming all of these obstacles. Instead of going to war with the world... He made his bed with power and pride and prostitutes. And it was just to say that this is what pride does. It leads to destruction. That famous verse in Proverbs 16, 18. That pride goeth before fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. That's Samson in a nutshell. It's him right here. We're seeing that awful trajectory played out before us. It leads you to be flippant, pride does, with God's words. Why else? Why should we care about God's words? We're strong in and of ourselves. We're strong and sufficient and wise in and of ourselves. And so I would just say, as soon as you begin to think that your strength is what's bringing about your success, you are doomed to repeat the same pitiful plunge that Samson here did. It's not your strength. It's not your sufficiency. It's not your wisdom. It's not your skill. It's not your dexterity that is allowing all of these things to come about in your life. It is entirely a gift that God has given you. It's entirely his bestowment of blessing. 
that's the testimony that we have. All of these gifts that, he was, he, that Samson was given, they were never meant to bloat his ego. They were never meant to just inflate his pride up to like Macy's Day Parade balloon levels. They were meant to show him exactly what God always does. He works in strong ways through very weak people. He he works mightily through the weakest of vessels. And that hastens me back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You don't have to go there. You can mark it down. 1 Corinthians 1, 26, where Paul is just screaming out to the Corinthian church, Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. (laughs) He wasn't meant... To be elevated in his standing before God because he was special, because he was chosen, because he was ordained. He was meant to showcase to the world, this is what God does. He uses weak people to showcase his wonders. Samson had to learn that the hard way. That he's not strong and sufficient in and of himself. I pray you don't. Samson did. And as he's marched out in this scene back in Judges 16, as sort of the centerpiece of the Philistines' celebration, they're surrounded by this crowd of magistrates and religious rulers who are all celebrating their god, Dagon, this awful deity. And they're celebrating the fact that, in their minds, the capturing of Samson means the victory of Dagon. And they're pardoning. They're celebrating, and they lead him out to the middle of the courtyard to jeer at him and mock at him, and he's positioned between these two pillars, as as we read in our text. It's interesting, notice again verse 26. And Samson said to the young man, who led him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. There we see just the shell of a man that Samson now is. He's no longer slaughtering 30 men all by himself or tearing apart a lion with his bare hands. He can barely stand. He's leaning against these pillars, heaving, I imagine. And he's panting and gasping for breath as he hears the noise around him. The noise of all these shouts, these jeers, these mockings about who he is and what has become of him and who his God is. And suddenly he remembers He remembers perhaps Manoah and his mom. And he remembers his God. And he begins to pray. Notice verse 28. And then Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh God, oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. That I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. 
It's a prayer of humiliation. He is at his lowest point. There is nothing lower than this moment of blind, weak Samson being mocked at by his very enemies. And here he is. He's praying. He's praying, perhaps whispering under his breath. God, just remember me. Remember me this once. Strengthen me this once. This prayer of faith is heard in the ears of God. And we're given a clue as to why. Verse 22, I think, is the most awesome verse in the whole passage. After he's been suffered, uh, made to have his head shaven and forced into servitude. Notice it says, verse 22, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Which, to be sure, is not for us to see. See, there is magic in his follicles. It's meant to show us that something was stirring in Samson in that pit. I very much believe that the sign of his hair growing back is a sign that his faith was returning. Even in this wilderness, even in this wasteland, even in this dungeon where he's being shackled and forced to the service and function of a donkey. Even here, Samson is remembering and he cries out at his weakest moment, God, remember me. So he presses against the pillars and he cries out. Let me die, verse 30, with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and, with, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in, the, in it. So the dead whom he killed in his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. He shoves those pillars to the sides. The, the mighty strength of the spirit coursing through his veins again. And all of that house came crumbling down. It's a feat that is quite alarming. But I think that the, the thing that stands out to me is just the fact that God answers his prayer. God answers the prayer of wayward Samson. Who's done much of nothing to live up to his calling up to this point. He hasn't done much in the way of standing before those whom he should. And living up to the calling of God. And yet as far away as he was. Who hears him? Yahweh does. Jehovah God does. The Lord your God hears your prayers my friends. No matter how far away you have striven, no matter how far away and what you have made with your life, no matter what type of wreckage that is behind you, and you can see it in your rearview mirror, and you can see and know that all of this is behind me, it's being caused by me, God hears you. He hears prayers of faith. He hears prayers of humiliation. He hears prayers of those who were once prideful being realizing, yes, that all of that was just smoke and mirrors. It was a mirage. And there's nothing that can withstand the mighty hope of God. And here, Samson prays. And he's heard. And I think for just a fleeting moment, Samson is made to learn just what it means to serve the Lord at all. He had misunderstood it his whole life. He thought it meant accolades for him and attention for him. But now he truly understands what does service mean? Service means death. You want to know what serving God means in our context? Maybe not death literally, but death to yourself. And death to your wants, and death to your desires, and death to your plans. 
Such is why God in Christ says in the Gospels that those who want to follow me, they have to take up their cross. It's a symbol that death is the way to service. And service is the way to glorifying God in the most powerful way. If you want to serve God, you have to die. Samson learned that. Yes, in the most horrible way possible. But the truth of all of this, as we hinted at earlier, is that Samson, I think, exists to point us if I can say, to the true and better Samson to come. It's no mistake that his nativity was echoing with the nativity of Christ. Because in Samson's final act of service, this sacrificial death by which he fells all of the Philistines, I think we're also made to see the perfect sacrificial service of God's only son, who, as he says in Mark 10, 45, came not to be served, but to serve. And he serves in the most powerful way possible, not by unwillingly going to death, not by reluctantly dying, but by willingly and obediently going to the cross. Whereas one commentator points out that when Samson died, he died to crush his enemies with him. But when Jesus died, he died for his enemies to have life. And here we're made to see the awesome quality of Samson that he points us to the true and better Samson to come. Jesus, who serves his whole life. His whole life is a life of service, is a life of death. And where Samson might have begun the work of delivering Israel, Jesus brings it to bear. Those words in Matthew 1, the nativity of Christ, where it says, The angel, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He's the one who brings it all about. He's the one through whom all of this salvation culminates into a single point. It's the point of his death, the ultimate act of service, the ultimate acts of glory of the Father. My friends, this morning, I preach to myself. We are all riddled with pride in ways that we cannot imagine. Ways perhaps that we can't even articulate and express But the message that fells pride is the message of the service of the Son who went to the cross, not reluctantly, but willingly. And he went there for you and for me, taking all of our sins and washing them away in the blood that was shed on behalf of all of our iniquities. My friends, that's the message that fells pride. The true and better Samson, who has come to bring about salvation. This is the good news. Let us pray.